everyone, welcome to the Emerging Pod, where we guide emerging people into emerging careers. Today's guest is Heiko Hotz. Heiko has an extensive career that spans software development, consulting, and data science, which took him from Munich to Zurich and now London. He started off at Panasonic before moving on to Cuperia, FTI Consulting, and most recently, Amazon, where he's a senior solutions architect for AI and machine learning. Finally, in his spare time, he does some consulting on the side and organizes the AWS NLP Summit, as well as the London NLP Meetup. Great to have you with us, Heiko. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. Um, so let's kind of dig straight into it. So you went to the University of Munich and you chose to yeah. study physics and computer science. That's what, right. what inspired that choice? What made you do that? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question, actually. Um, I actually started um, with computer science as a major um, because I already knew how to program when I went to university. I started programming when I was around 14 or 15. Um, so for me, the logical choice was to go to, to university and study computer science. And then I found it really dull, to be honest. Um, well, not dull is not the right word, but it just wasn't what I expected. It was a lot of more math than I expected. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to computer science classes and I'm going to learn how to be a really good programmer. And, you know, in retrospect, if I understand why I need to learn mathematics to be a really good programmer, um, but that wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And I had physics as a minor and uh, I found those class is much more interesting. So I was like, after a year, I was like, why don't I just reverse that? So I studied physics as a major, theoretical physics um, and computational physics and I had computer science still as a minor. And that was the perfect combination for me because in computational physics, um, you need to have a little bit more of a hacker mindset. And by hacker, I don't mean like a nefarious person who hacks into systems, but more like you don't need to know the math really behind the programming that you do. You just need to get something up and working. Um, and uh, and that was more the style. So uh, to this day, I wouldn't say I'm a good programmer um, because I'm not really interested in, in all the math and optimization behind it, but I can you know quickly stitch some stuff together and, and get it working. You mentioned that you've learned how to code before you actually went to university, and that's mm. kind of a trend that we see with a lot of people. How did you learn yeah. how to code, and what, what languages did you use? Um, the first language I used was BASIC. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know if people even know that language anymore, um, but you know, it's not a BASIC language. It's a language called BASIC, um, and it's a good it's a good way to get started, especially at a young age, because it follows, you know, um, like if you start doing object oriented programming, that's something you, that is not quite the way our, our like logic in our brain works. It's more like our logic in our brain has if then, and then if this, then jump to that. And that's what you can do with basic. But um, once you start get getting a bit more sophisticated with basic, um, then it, it becomes what it's called like spaghetti code because it just, in basic, you just have these jump points. So if this then jump to this point and then if this jump back to this point. So at some point, 
I reached my um, the things I can do with basic reach a ceiling. So I then um, just asked my uncle who introduced me to uh, programming uh, in the first place. I was like, is there something, you know, out there that um, is better suited for more complicated programs? And he introduced me to a programming language called C. So I used C um, for, you know, to, to basically move on from there. I used it then during high school where we had a computer science like um, class. Um, I used to see there. And then uh, in the first job at Panasonic, I also programmed in C++ actually. Uh, and then in university to do my major thesis, that was also in C++. Um, yeah. Um, I, I stuck with that actually for quite a long time yeah no oh, interesting do you remember the project you were doing in basic where you reached the limit and have you tried then to do that project in c um yeah it was i think around the time when i started doing like a database for my cd collection where i got right. like uh it was like super basic right um but you know i feel like 15 16 years old quite cool or when i started doing like um very simple games like hangman um yeah so that's i think where the transition started where i was like my code in basic just became so long and really not manageable anymore when i tried to do a a a database for my cd so um that's when i then uh basically made the switch and then i think the hangman game um where you have to guess letters in a word um that one i uh, already didn't even try in basic i think that's uh, i did that completely in c okay and then moving on to i suppose the first job at panasonic how did you mm. get that how did you how was that transition from education into employment for you so Panasonic was actually during um, uh, my studies, so it, it was in parallel. Um, I worked there uh, uh, during the breaks. So in total, I worked between five to six months at Panasonic um, during the semester once a week. And then in the um, breaks uh, in between in the summer and winter break, I worked there full time. Um, so in total, probably around five to six months. Um, and uh, again, I got that through my uncle who worked there and he was like, you know, um, being a student in Munich was, um, was quite expensive. Um, and he was like, yeah, you want to earn some, some extra money on the side. And obviously he knew already that I could program. So I started out there as a tester actually, or not a tester, but a, a, software engineer that write tests programs test programs so it's like unit testing um and and just you know test programs for the compiler that panasonic um developed so panasonic developed a compiler and a an ide for programmable uh, controller units pcus um basically if you think about your garage door opener right if you press a button the garage door opens but how does it know to do that? Well, you have to program it. And in order to program it, you can use one of those um, IDEs that Panasonic develops. And those um, IDEs are, again, written then in the back end in C++. 
Um, and those IDEs compile code, proprietary code written in, in these IDEs. And I needed to make sure that the compiled code does exactly what it needs to do. So I wrote test programs um, where I was like, every night, every night, every time we uh, changed something, the, the main developer for the compiler changed something on the compiler, we needed to make sure that all the basic functions still work. So the idea is you have a range of test programs that you run every time you change something on the compiler to make sure that it still works for all the old use cases. Um, so that's how I got started. And then over time, I got to work a little bit more on the actual uh, IDE development as well. So what um, what I um, managed to implement, for example, is syntax coloring into the IDE. So nowadays, I mean, that's obviously a given if you have an IDE and you program into it, you know, keywords are highlighted in a certain color versus strings versus comments. Um, and that was already back then the, the case for most the prominent uh, coding languages like C++. But in our IDE, the IDE that uh, Panasonic developed, that wasn't the case back then. So um, that's something I was able to implement into that IDE so that you would have syntax coloring. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you... And then you switched, you moved to Cuperior, which is a consultancy based out of also Munich, but then you kind of got to move around and live in Zurich for a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how that, was that? Yeah, that, yeah, that was right after university. So after university, I was like, well, I, you know, the, the job at Panasonic was amazing and I learned a lot, but uh, I wanted, you know, uh, to, to branch out a little bit more into consulting world. And the idea there was um, twofold, really. Um, based on my experience from uh, Panasonic and also based on the experience I had during studying physics and the diploma thesis in physics back then took one year to write. Um, that was the usual time frame. So I studied one year in the same topic very intensely. Um, and I also worked always on the same stuff at Panasonic. And I was like, I'm more of a person who loves to, you know, dig deep into something for a little while, but then move on to, to, to something else to have a little bit more variety. So that's how I thought consulting would, um, you know, be quite useful for me. Um, and, and that's why and how I then reached out to different consulting firms, IT consulting firms in particular, back in the day. What was a, an interesting project you worked on during that time? Um, during that time, I guess one of the most interesting projects I worked on was a project where we had um, PDFs uh, that are editable. Um, so there's this um, public organization in Zurich um, and their workflow was they would send out PDFs to citizens. And usually um, these PDFs would be read-only. And then in order to collect the data, they would have to use some sort of um, HTML form, like a website or something. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't possible back then 
for the organization to send out to the citizens a PDF and the citizens just fill in the PDF and write that data into a data bank, uh, a database. So um, um, that's uh, that's a project I worked on, which, which I found quite interesting because it was very new technology back then. It was um, basically having a PDF where you can actually write in your answers and send that back via email. And then the email comes in and then uh, I created this workflow where the the attachment from the email, which was that PDF, where the answers uh, were recorded, would be extracted and then take the answers from the PDF automatically and write the uh, the data into a database. Nice, a little bit of data engineering on that side. Yes. So yeah. is that one of your first um, forays into the world of data? Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Um, uh, like a lot of um, a lot of projects back then were actually in the database realm because the IT consulting firm Cuperia I worked uh, with, they were specializing in SAP, uh, the mm -hmm. Enterprise Resource Planning System. I don't know if you've heard yeah. of it, but we'll basically say, yeah. it's a... Uh, Yes, it's a system where you basically manage all your business processes. And so uh, a lot of the projects I worked on back then were around, you know, how do we store data? Um, like what is master data and uh, what is application data? How are they different? How do we store them differently? Uh, I learned, yeah, I learned a lot about databases and, and SQL back then, uh, which I didn't have uh, really... Uh, a lot of knowledge before that job so and sql is probably one of the most important languages still i think out there so i yeah i was very grateful for that experience and what made you want to move to london uh so london was actually the um i wanted to do an mba um so yeah. during my time you know i always had something to do with um, with technology or, or uh, science. So I have a science background, obviously, with physics, and then I worked uh, in an IT consulting firm. Um, but as a consultant, I obviously, more often than not, also get in touch with the business people in 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 uh, the the companies I, I worked for as a consultant. So, you know, I'm a consultant, I'm going to my client, uh, and usually I would have to do something with IT consulting, but sometimes we also meet the business people. And I, I realized I didn't have a, a lot of understanding of like the business aspects of the stuff we were doing. So I thought it would be a really nice complementary skill if I could uh, rack up my business acumen. Uh, and, you know, after researching a little bit, I thought an, an MBA would be a good way to do that. And how did that open up? further career opportunities was that yeah, when you so, then joined FTI yeah so I uh, I basically came to to London so I studied then the MBA uh, at London Business School from 2013 to 2015 um, and during that time uh, we are encouraged during the summer break so in 2014 to do an internship and uh, I managed to get an internship at FTI consulting um, which was still in a technical uh, part of the consulting firm, but it was much more. Um, 
it was much more business oriented as well. So um, the internship I did in the analytics team at FTI Consulting and what they usually do is they um, look at uh, financial fraud cases, do forensic litigation. So if you, for example, imagine, you know, uh, there's a financial fraud case, uh, one, one party is accusing the other party of financial fraud. There's obviously a lot of uh, transactional data um, and uh, that needs to be analyzed um, in order to give the lawyers some information uh, in order to, you know, so that the lawyers can make their case. So, so that's the internship I did in 2014, and apparently I did I did an okay job because they offered me a full time offer after my MBA. So that's when I then in 2015 after my MBA started at, at FTI Consulting as a senior director. That's pretty interesting. At that point, were you aware of the kind of growing field of data science and data science as a career in itself? And did you know that Not you were attracted at, to that? Yeah. Yeah, not not at the point when I started at FTI Consulting, but um, um, because now I was a little bit more removed from the database part and the data management part and more into analytics, I started obviously then seeing you know analytics. If you if you look at it like it from from a way that analytics is basically looking at past data and trying to get insights from what happened in the past. Um, there is uh, naturally another side to it, which is the looking into future, uh, looking into the future part, which is using patterns from the past in order to predict the future, which is where where data science came in. So uh, uh, after you know a few months of uh, being in the analytics team, I started you know um, realizing oh there's another. There's another side to this, which is looking into the future. So I started doing like online courses. I started learning about data science, about machine learning. Um, at that point, I also had switched my main programming language to Python, which is a little bit more modern, obviously. So that enabled me to quite easily follow these um, classes, these online classes that I did on, on machine learning and data science. Oh, interesting. And you mentioned you worked in in some. Uh, you were working on financial crime. Uh, what's the What's the most interesting project you've you've worked on? And I guess f coming from a technical space, how did you approach you know getting into the finance space and understanding it? Yeah, I mean, in the end, it uh, for me it didn't really matter. Like it's data, right? Whether it's it's financial data or you know, some sort of uh, operational data. Um, in, for me, it, it didn't matter, at least not when it came to the most interesting project I worked on during FTI Consulting, which was a, a really large financial fraud case. I think it is the largest and longest financial fraud case that was ever litigated at the Cayman Islands. Um, uh, so if you look for like longest fraud case in Cayman Islands, uh, and uh, there should be something coming up around uh, a company called Ahab, A-H-A-B. Um, I might be able to find a link to uh, and send it to you afterwards as well. But um, uh, basically what we did there is there was this company called Ahab, 
and they um, accused another person of um, embezzlement. Uh, they accused this person of embezzlement of, I think, nine billion US dollars. Whoa. Whoa. Um, and to uh, to spoil to spoil the ending right away before I get into the actual project, we managed uh, like our side. I I was working for lawyers who were working for the defendant, and they were actually able to not only disprove the allegations of embezzlement, but they also during the during the litigation, during the, the process, uh, it found out they, uh, this company Ahab actually, they did some um, financial fraud. They were complicit, I have it here, in a $330 billion Ponzi scheme between the period of 1980 to 2008. So, you know, a large amount of uh, money that, that is um, thrown around here. And what I did... In, in order to help the lawyers to disprove the allegations is I built a tracing tool, uh, which is, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't straightforward, to be honest, it, because what the, the, the question that the lawyers had to answer is, there's a bank account in, you know, 2008 um, that belongs to our defendant, and there's money in it. Um, like, what does this money consist of? Is there any tainted money in that account? And then I had, you know, a list of transactions. I think it was like around 1.4 million transactions um, that um, needed to be analyzed. And every transaction, um, it's not only the 1.4 million transactions, because imagine this, if I... If I have a bank account with 20 pounds in it and you stole some money of 50 pounds and put that into my bank account, now I have 70 pounds in my bank account and now I send 40 pounds to a friend of mine, like these 40 pounds, how much of that from a legal point of view is 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 contained, tainted money, right? I had 20 dollars clean money in it you gave me 50 dollars of dirty money i send out 40 dollars and now i have to suddenly split this one transaction of 40 dollars into two uh one where it says 20 dollars were clean because it was my own money and 20 dollars were obtained because it consisted of the money that you sent me so one transaction now splits into two transactions and you have to keep track of all those transactions and the splits within those transactions to be able to say at the end, uh, you know, the 1.3 million that are in this bank account of my defendant, of, of my defendant, it came from this, 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 this bank accounts all flowing in together, intermingling with each, with each other. So it's very, it's a very difficult, difficult question that these lawyers have to answer actually found the the article as well so i'm gonna send you this one here it's a very difficult um question that these lawyers have to answer and usually the way they used to do it is uh going manually through it through excel sheets and that takes months if not years usually so i basically build a tool uh in python quite quite straightforward that actually the um that automated this search, this, you know, tra uh, keeping track of these splits within transactions and being able 
to just type in an account number, uh, the funds in that account, and then it would trace back all the way to the sources of that money. So the um, the lawyers would be able to say, okay, the 1.3 million in our defendant's bank account, it came from these sources and none of that was actually tainted, tainted money. So, you know, our, 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 our defendant is, is clean. Wow, that's really interesting. I can't imagine how much you've had to learn in, in such a short amount of time to be able to do it. But I guess you're... It, yeah, go yeah. for it. No, it was great because I actually managed to also leverage all the like some of the knowledge I um I learned during Panasonic when I wrote test use cases because um I had several tries to uh set up this tool, this algorithm. Um and in the beginning it failed um quite a few times and so I iterated on it, but when I iterated on it, it would work for certain edge cases now, but it would fail for other edge cases. So what I did is actually I wrote test use cases and every time I changed the algorithm I made sure it worked for all the other edge cases I tested it before. Nice, nice. And so how how did you then transition from FTI and the financial world into Amazon? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, during my spare time, I already was more interested in data science. And um, I, you know, I saw that tech companies um, like Amazon would would in the long run be a more interesting place for me if I wanted to really get into the data science. So um, during that time, I also started working as a volunteer for an organization organization here in London called DataKind UK. Um, and what DataKind does is, um, the you, you know, imagine you are like a, a data scientist or someone who aspires to be a data scientist like I was back then. Um, and there are a lot of charities around London that collect actually a lot of data but don't have the skills or the knowledge or the time or the money to to leverage data science for the data that they are collecting. So DataKind UK is a platform or an organization um, that allows me as a, a data scientist to donate my time and my skills to projects to work with other charities. So DataKind brings them all together, uh, the charities and the volunteer data scientists. And then what we would do is like maybe uh, a weekend hackathon with those charities to dig a little bit deeper into, into their data and also do longer projects with, with those charities. That is all to say, um, you know, that's, the, that's how I got started with data science. And I, I then realized at some point, maybe a move to Amazon would be quite good in order to also ramp up my, my data science skills. So I started out in the supply chain team as a technical program manager, um, where I uh, still leverage my analytics skills because in supply chain, you're often interested in like what happened last week. Um, you know, did we make our deliveries on time? Did we stock our our warehouses uh, in the right ways but also you wanted to be looking forward obviously so one of the projects i worked on was a forecasting project where in in amazon if we uh, um, provision labor 
for a warehouse. So uh, usually we have short contract workers working in these warehouses. So let's say next week, you know, we estimate we're going to ship 7 million SKUs from a particular warehouse. Uh, how are those 7 million SKUs distributed over the week? Uh, how many people do we need on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on? Uh, if we if we overestimate how many we need on each day, then we pay obviously for too much labor. If we underestimate it, then we are short on labor and we have to do like an emergency call to call in um, labor on a very short uh, period, uh, notice period, which is also more expensive. So it, it's quite important to get it right. And um, uh, as such, um, I managed to improve our forecasting methodology uh, with like state-of-the-art, back, back then anyway, state-of-the-art forecasting um, algorithms like ARIMA and PROFIT um, instead of using the old methodologies that we used back then. Interesting. And uh, at the time where you arrived, was how mature was data science at Amazon? Were you at the point where teams were pretty well structured and you were hiring juniors or was it still at the point where people needed to have some level of experience in industry before joining the team? This is a good question. Um, I mean, it's hard to say really because Amazon, as you imagine, is such a big company. Yeah. So um, there were teams, especially in Seattle, who uh, were full of data scientists and they, you know, they did some of the most sophisticated systems I had ever seen uh, back then. Uh, my team, the supply chain team, I was the only person with a, a data science slash data analytics background. Um, but it was already at the point, I think, at Amazon where Jeff Bezos, the CEO back, back at the time, um, basically asked of every team or at least every uh, sub-organization in, in, in Amazon, how they manage, um, how they leverage machine learning in their teams. So there was at some point, Bezos basically reached out to all the teams and said, I want every team in, in Amazon to leverage machine learning in some form or another. So um, um, I feel like it was just, you know, at that cusp of changing between, um, between, a, a structure within the organization where you had data science teams on the one hand and then teams who had nothing to do with data science on the other hand and um, going into a future where basically every team needed to have, you know, a data scientist or at least, you know, some projects around machine learning. And so at the stage you are now, are you recruiting junior data scientists? And if so, what, what do you look for in in those uh, early career data scientists? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I, the, the position I'm in is slightly different. So first of all, I, I changed from Amazon to Amazon Web Services, which is a different legal entity. So at AWS, uh, we also obviously do have data scientists, but as a solutions architect, I'm a little bit removed from the data science part and more in the in the s solutions part of uh, AI and machine learning. So um, I would say as, a, you know, we, we do hire in our team, but uh, as, as a solutions architect, 
if you want to do pure data science, then a solutions architect is probably not the, the right place for you. Uh, as a solutions architect, you also need to have some traits of machine learning engineering, ML engineering, ML ops, machine learning operations, and um, just being able to stitch together different solutions to help um, help customers. Mm, makes sense. Makes sense. And I guess that's still that's still a skills that's still like an area where ideally the person that's recommending those system needs to have some understanding of of what data science look like. So it could be for someone that's starting in data science field, this, this could be a path they could explore. Yeah, so think of it this way, really. Like, uh, my customers are data scientists. So, you know, at AWS, um, we have a machine learning platform, which is used by our customers and, and usually by the data science teams of our customers. So it's very good for me to know the in and outs of, of data science, like what are their needs. But my job is really for them to be successful on our machine learning platform. So I need to anticipate and listen to our customers. What are their needs? Um, how can data scientists nowadays, for example, leverage something like large language models or uh, stable diffusion like AI art generation? Um, I know that data scientists want to do that, but how can they do that on our platform? And how can do that uh, efficiently and effectively on our platform? So that's basically the role I'm filling is trying to, you know, point out best practices on how to leverage our platform and create demos so that customers can see how it can be done and um, follow, follow, you know, um, my examples. Interesting. And actually that's a perfect transition in terms of talking about large language models. It might be a bit of a very broad question, but from your perspective, can you just briefly describe what are large language models and how do you think they will change the, na the nature of work? Yeah, so uh, a phrase I like to to use always is large language models are like auto text generation on steroids. So, um, uh, or, or like what? No, no, it's not auto text generation. Uh, auto complete. Autocomplete is what it's called, right? On your phone, if you type something in, uh, it tries to complete the or predict the next word. So that's basically what large language models really are. So um, to, to back up a little, a large language model is a neural network. So that means it, it leverages the technology of deep learning. And it's been just, you know, the, the two things that stand out with large language models compared to other neural networks is A, they're huge. Um, stand uh, state-of-the-art large language models like GPT-3, they have uh, usually around hundreds of billions of parameters. Uh, and they've been trained on a very large data set. That's the second differentiating factor. So basically think of a large language model um, as a really clever uh, neural network that's been trained on all the text on the internet. I mean, technically that's not quite true, but you know, in order to, you know, very, very simply put it, it's been trained on all the languages um, on all the internet. So it basically has a very good understanding of language, but at its core, it's still only a uh, next word prediction neural network. So it tries to predict the next word, um, and that's how it generates these, these um, sentences and paragraphs. But it's just so much better than 
you know, your your autocomplete on your phone. Ultimately, it is it is a statistical function, right? It just predicts what's going to be typed next based on what's been previously typed. It doesn't really have a, a semantic understanding of what it's actually saying, which is one of the reasons why it's such a confident bullshitter in, in many instances. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you need to know that in order to make use of it, right? So I see on Twitter and you know social media platforms, I see all these cases where people say like, oh, GPT-3, it's just a hoax. You can't really use it because it predicts or it, it tells me to, I don't know, um, two plus two is five or like, you know, if I ask it of the, what did I see recently? Uh, tell me the benefits about eating broken glass or something like that. <laughs> and, and then, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very easy to fool these tools, but then just don't use it as a medical advice, right? Use it, use it in a way that they are built for. It's like, it's like eating a soup with a knife. I feel like sometimes people are like, oh, it doesn't work. The knife doesn't work. So, you know, I can't eat my soup with it. Like it's useless. No, it's not useless. If you use it for the right tasks, it's very useful. Um, uh, these these models, uh, large language models like GPT, ChatGPT, GPT three, they're very useful if you want to get started with, you know, let's say you are a writer. Uh, oftentimes, I write blog posts on LinkedIn, and I'm I'm like I have some bullet points in mind that I I want to um, highlight in in my in my paragraphs. But sometimes I get writer's block. And then I just try out ChatGPT and it gives me some ideas on how I can get started with my actual writing. Uh, another example is um, these language models do very well with code. And um, it it's almost like, um, so I did this with ChatGPT recently. I actually published an article on Towards Data Science about it, where I used ChatGPT to write a complete application on AWS. And it's like having a, a junior developer uh, by your side at all times. Um, sometimes what JetGPT produces is not quite correct, but that also happens sometimes with um, junior developers, right? So I can ask JetGPT to do something, but I should not expect it to be automated because there can be mistakes in its answers. But usually the answers are very, very useful, and I also only needed to change one or two things in in the code that it generated, um, which I would sometimes have to do as a senior developer as well, right? If I have a junior developer, they send something via email. I'm like, really good. There was one, two mistakes in there. I fixed it. And now we can deploy the application. Exactly like that. So all this is to say, find the use cases where these language models are really useful for. And don't think about it too much in terms of like, oh, how can I make this language model, large language model fail? It's very easy if you want to try to make it fail. But again, the, you know, it's, I, I come, I'm coming back to this analogy, eating, eating your soup with a knife. I think one of the, one of the things that people don't realize is the exponential growth potential of these models and the fact that ChatGPT has been released out in the public, so all of this is training material for it. So it's learning and improving as we as we go along. Do you have any insights on chat uh, on GPT four, and what kind of improvements can we expect, and to yeah. what extent can that impact how we do our work? 
Um, I, I don't really have any unique insights. So if you have been reading, you know, all the rumors that have been floating around on Twitter, that's basically my knowledge as well. Um, so apparently uh, it's going to be massive in terms of like number of um, uh, parameters. Uh, the, the number I've been seeing floating around the most is 10 billion, which is just mind blowing. Um, it's similar to the jump we had uh, from GPT-2 to GPT-3, uh, it's just unfathomable. Um, and then uh, the other rumor I heard is it's going to be coming out soon-ish, definitely this year, maybe even uh, Q1 this year. Um, uh, in terms of what we will be able to do, I only heard, again, just hearsay, uh, but apparently there are some people on Twitter who had early access to it and were mind-blown. So... I mean, it's only going to get better anyway, right? Like, that shouldn't be surprising. Like, it, it's going to be surprising maybe to the amount G, to the amount of how GPT-4 is better than GPT-3. But the fact that it is all getting better and better, that shouldn't surprise anyone. So at some point, we will have to think about the impact of, um, of, of these language models. Right now, I still would say the impact is not, like, I'm, I'm talking economic and societal impacts. I mean, there's impact already on a technology level, uh, like very large impact. But from a societal point of view, I still would say, you know, those are tools right now. And if we use them in the right way, it makes our lives easier, but it cannot, you know, automate my work, for example, and not, not at this point in time. But uh, with the pace of improvements, we will have to think about, like, just think about, what happened in the last two years, and now think about what's going to ha be happening in the next 10 years. I mean, at some point, we will get to a point where where a large language model or maybe another AI model uh, or another architecture will be at a point where it can automate like 95% of, of the work I'm doing. It can, you know, like to give you an idea of what I'm doing like I, you know, customers reach out with a problem. I try to help them. I answer emails. I create demos for them. I create best practices, examples for them. All that is, you know, it's all text-based really. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, at some point in time on an infinite time scale, there will be a model out there that can do all that for me. Yeah. And I think one aspect also that even just GPT-3 and GPT-4 as they will be is the fact that people can fine tune them is something that can also be underestimated. I think from my perspective, it's probably one of the most powerful part of it where you can take something like GPT-3 and really focus on a specific area or on a specific task and make it way better at being able to, for example, you mentioned medical, the medical space, maybe that's, that could be a, a, an area that can be fine tuned for it. You, I saw on your blog you you posted a project on uh, a strategy bot for you developed a strategy bot for an NGO using GPT three. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, this NGO it's called Ashoka, and um, they are a platform for social entrepreneurs. Uh, so entrepreneurs who create social enterprises, they want to do good in the world, and in order to be admitted to that platform and communicate their ideas, they are encouraged to write strategy papers of like, you know, this is my idea, 
this is the project I want to set up. And beyond that, even what is going to be the impact, the indirect impact I will have with my with my project, like what is um, the strategical impact, if you will. And uh, for a lot of those uh, social entrepreneurs, that can be quite challenging, quite daunting. It's it's a, it's a you know a, a really long abstract that needs to be written with like complex uh, ideas uh, in that. And um, the idea of Ashoka when they reached out was like, can we leverage GPD three again? as a starting point, not as a fully automation of writing the strategy paper, but, you know, giving the social entrepreneurs, like, let GPT-3 write one of those strategy papers um, uh, and and let that be the starting point for those entrepreneurs um, uh, in order to give them ideas of how they could write it, maybe even ideas on, like, what other strategies they could pursue in their project. So what we did is exactly what you said, Sofiana. It's um, uh, we fine-tuned the GPT-3 model uh, with strategy papers that Ashoka had from social entrepreneurs in the past, and we basically taught it: look, these, this is the format and the type of complexity um, social entrepreneurs write their strategy papers in. Um, we we gave those to GPT-3 and be like. Yeah, look at these strategy papers. This is uh, how we want you to write uh, strategy papers in going forward. If you if we type this specific prompt into the text box, and it turned out to be really powerful and um, impactful. So we trained it on only a few hundred of those examples. Um, the training didn't. It cost about ten dollars in total. Um, with you know a, f- a few iterations uh took only a few hours two to three hours and then the new model was ready and we tried it out and it was it was really really good so these kind of things i'm going to expect to get even better with gpt4 but already i mean alex you, you mentioned you know and and i agree they these models don't have any semantic understanding of like what they're writing but but it seems like that, and uh, it, it. I think they they will become even better at pretending, um, it, to the way, to to the end that it's, you know, it doesn't really matter for me anyway whether these models are sentient or not. Uh, that's not an interesting question to me. But if they are so good at pretending to understand the semantics and the meaning of what they write, uh, does it become useful for us? Uh, and when we get to that point, and I think we're already there halfway, then, you know, that's already something, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so a final question is, as we see large language models in generative AI more generally increase its footprint and its usefulness, what would you recommend young people that are just transitioning into the world of work who might be learning things that could become fairly redundant in the <laughs> short term. Uh, what would you recommend they they do? How should they think about their transition? What should they learn? Yeah. What that, what yeah, would that a... mindset be like? <laughs> it's it's exactly that danger, Alex, that you mentioned. It's like, well, if I recommend something now and then two years later, it turns <laughs> out, oh, yeah, that's obsolete now. I guess, um, I guess to trying to be a little bit more meta is then, 
um, learn how machines think in general and learn to live with change. I know these are like very big ideas but uh, and not very concrete. Um, but I think going forward, that is the way um, to go. If you're interested in, in these kind of things, try to understand like how AI works, not in a very specific way uh, in terms of like, oh, you've got to learn logistic regression or something like that. But more of the concept of like, how does training uh, an AI look like? Think about, you know, forward passes, back propagation, these kind of high level concepts. I, th I don't think those will go away anytime soon. Uh, Backpropagation back is the essential key to how how machines learn from their mistakes, how we teach them, and uh, you know having having a good understanding of that on a high level um, high level basis uh, is going to be worth a lot. And then just be comfortable with change in in terms of like you know. Yes, you might be learning something that might be obsolete in two years, but it's not only the content that you learn. It's all about you learning how to learn, if that makes sense. So, like, how do I approach a complicated subject? How do I dive deep into it? How do I find quickly the right GitHub repositories and resources um, in order to, when something new comes up, like stable diffusion, to learn that quickly as well. So stable diffusion for me was quite quick to learn because I studied large language models before that. And there are similar concepts that I could easily translate in order to learn how stable diffusion works. Nice. Thanks. Thanks, Echo. That's some very useful and sound advice. Um, do you have, before we wrap up, do you have anything you'd like to promote or where can people reach you? So I guess LinkedIn is probably the best site to reach out to me. So uh, my LinkedIn profile, High Cohorts, if you search for that, I am uh, I should be the only one coming up. Maybe not, but, you know, put AI and machine learning behind that, then you should be able to find me. Um, also, if you're in London, uh, if you live in London, I organize uh, regular NLP London meetups. They're only in-person only, so no, uh, no way to... to attend virtually. So if people want to come to those, uh, it's free usually, and there's going to be food and interesting crowd. Uh, you can exchange ideas. Um, what else? Yes. Uh, I data kind, um, reach, reach out to data kind. If you're interested in, you know, if you're an aspiring data scientist and want to hone your skills a little bit, data kind, I think is a, is a great platform, uh, as well. Uh, and then, yeah, um, that should be it. I mean, I'm looking forward to uh, anyone who, you know, uh, at some point reaches out because they listen to this podcast. That'd be amazing. Thanks for your time, Echo. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you. We'll put all the details and links to the fraud case and everything else you mentioned in the show notes. Mm. Perfect. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks for your time, Heiko. Cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye.